podcast one production. We live in a world where we can access almost everything anyone has ever learned instantly in the palm of our hands. All of that knowledge, now available everywhere to everyone, is changing the way we learn about the world around us. Today, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this series, we talk to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. Now that we all have information at our fingertips, what does that mean for how we learn? Can we junk classrooms and teachers and libraries and librarians and just give everyone a smartphone? Or is there something deeper at work here, something more meaningful than mere facts and figures? That may be what we're actually learning. So it's how we're learning and how it's changing on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. fortnight after I moved to Australia, this was back in 2003, some friends of mine invited me out for a night of pub trivia. We drank beers, we answered questions, we had some laughs. We came in third, we missed the meat tray by just that much. It was a great night. But it was also a sign of how much the world had changed. Because these days, if you want to play pub trivia, you basically have to hand over your smartphone. You have to disconnect completely from this world of connected knowledge from Google and Wikipedia and websites that are on literally every topic under the sun. Because that's all there with us all of the time these days. And You know, to play trivia well, you need to have a quick mind, you need to have a really good memory, or you need to have access to a library's worth of facts. It's something that seemed nearly inconceivable 14 years ago, and that's less than half a billion seconds ago. That's now just the way things are. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our libraries? And On this episode, we're going to be speaking with a woman who's uniquely qualified to help us explore this question. Kate Turney is the CEO of the State Library of Victoria, the busiest public library in Australia with over 2 million annual visitors. Now, in the years before her current role, Kate was director of the news division of the ABC, overseeing 1,400 staff at a time when the very definition of what journalism is began to change under the impacts of social media and smartphones and the real intensification of a 24-hour news cycle. So it is safe to say that she knows a lot about how we learn the facts of the world and how that's changing. Kate, welcome to The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you very much for having me. So what is a library now? In 2017, what is a library? What does it mean? I love your story because I think that captures the heart of what I see at the State Library. So libraries have always been community spaces. Mm -hmm. They've always been places for knowledge, for learning, for information, for retreat. And when I walked into the library um, prior to taking up this role to really sort of get a sense of it, I was blown away, A, that it was so busy, and B, by the number of young people. A third of the people in the library today will be under the age of 30. And I've since learned over the 18 months that I've been there, in a highly connected world, 
a space where connectivity is in its physical form. So you might be there Mm. writing, studying, but you're doing that with other people. Mm -hmm. And I love walking through our beautiful reading room, you know, before the library opens. And you think on that particular day, you know, most days there will be one of Australia's best writers or most well-known writers in there, but there'll also be a range of other people following individual pursuits, but they are often there because of the community space and the connectivity that they get that is different to the highly connected world that they live in. So how is that connectivity and this very good Wi-Fi at the library? And it's funny because this is this is part of the story, right? I have been was talking to folks who run the Sydney Public Library, so, so local libraries, and they basically had to fight tooth and nail to get mm. Wi-Fi in. And they couldn't even get proper budget. They kind of had to make a black budget yes. for it and go through an outside... This was about six, seven years ago, so about 2010, when it was seen as something that was antithetical to the nature of the library. And now it's kind of the the first thing you grade a library on is, oh, the Wi-Fi is really good in this library, or the Wi-Fi is really crowded in this library. It, that's true, although that tension still exists because uh, the state libraries and state libraries around uh, Australia um, are typically uh, research reference libraries. Mm. And so the spaces have always been broadly used, but the Collections are often reference research and and beautiful collections, which are really telling the story of that state. So I will often have conversations with people who say, you know, it's full because of the Wi-Fi. Is that a good thing? That's a great thing. That is absolutely (laughs) sensational. And and I think some people see that it's a, you know, collection versus Wi-Fi and and a gathering space. It doesn't have to be that. So what is it when it's a collection plus Wi-Fi? What is it? around that. That's exactly what we're exploring now because imagine collection plus Wi-Fi. We have a collection that is worth um, over $350 million. You have Ned Kelly's armour. Ned Ned Kelly's armour. We have so much more. People think of a library collection as as books. Um, We have beautiful books, many of them rare, but we have the most extraordinary manuscript collection. So letters and paraphernalia, ephemera, maps. Um, You know, I defy, I could meet anyone and find their passion and find an item in our collection that would blow their minds. And yet, um, you probably don't know that and many of your listeners don't know that. So what's collection plus Wi-Fi? It's suddenly bringing that collection to everyone. And up until now, I think there's been that element of if you know what's in the collection, that's fabulous. But do we not do enough to actually tell people what's in the collection? And do you do that by digitizing the collection or by how – do, how do you actually make that connection then? Digitizing is not enough. It's not enough to digitize five million items and hope that you're going to find mm. the needle in a haystack. And that's why I think that notion of bringing or, or expanding storytelling in the library is really, really important. So that notion of we, we're very good at preserving and collecting and conserving our collection Um, what we need to get better at is sharing our collection. Mm. So in the way that a gallery and a museum really thinks about how they bring those items to life, that's the beauty of, 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 you know, now what we can do. So it's no good simply digitising and hoping that there's a great catalogue that you might dip into. 
It's then thinking about how do we tell those stories? And often it's the story behind the story of an item that is fascinating. So how did we get that letter? How did that particular map come to be in our possession? Or what does that tell us about the layout of Melbourne now? Um, We can't hope that people are going to find that information themselves. So is this part of what the role of a librarian is now that, you know, they're the storytellers, but factual stories around the stories of knowledge, but the stories of knowledge as the library has it? I think that's always been the role of the librarian. Um, But I think in 2017, people are coming to the library for a range of different reasons. Mm. Now, we hope that those that don't know about our collection, we can use that as an opportunity to tell them. But we also know that there will be people coming to our library and libraries across Victoria that are not coming for the collection, whether they be, be lending books or, or our kind of collection. So librarians have always been there to facilitate access to knowledge. Um, there's no dumb question in a library. And I think the important thing about libraries too is they're free, they're egalitarian, everyone walks in equal and everyone is welcome. And I have to tell you, it's a funny story because I'm a grown man, but I actually recently had exactly this experience at the Sydney University Library. So I've been on faculty there for a while, but I hadn't really ever gone through all the process of getting all of that stuff so I could use the research library. And it's an incredible, it's a world-class research library. But I was given time with a research librarian and sat down with her for an hour. And she's just like, here's how you do all the stuff. What are you interested in? And it was this beautiful opening. And I now feel feel like the collection, it's not so much that it's mine to do with what I want with, but I feel like I can dive in when I have a question that I think it can answer. I know how to look for that answer now. It's it, Don't you feel as though it, it's all the things you didn't know you didn't know? Yeah. You know, the librarian oh, yes. is able to sort of open up this whole world to information that you didn't even know you could access. And I think that that role hasn't changed. But I think the questions that the librarians are being asked has, have changed. So more and more, we're getting people coming in and asking, how do I start my small business? You know, mm-hmm. How do I register a business name? So the questions are changing and librarians are changing to meet that need. So does that then mean that the role of the librarian popularly seen was almost the guardian, right? Like the protector. Shh. And it's now really changed into someone who's a companion on that journey. Is that yes. really where we are now? I think that stereotypical, um, scary librarian. I don't know any of them. <laughs> I've never met any of those. Um, but it is that that point that I was, I was talking about, about being a, a storyteller as well. Mm-hmm. So a facilitator, a storyteller, and trying to really tap in in a more proactive way to what your needs are and responding to that. Now, given that those needs are evolving, are changing, are the ways that librarians are thinking about what they do, is that also evolving? Is that also changing now? Absolutely. And um, I, having come from the media sector and the news sector in particular, I'm just blown away by the transformation that's happened in the library sector, but quietly. So librarians... Well, of course, quietly. They're librarians. (laughs) Well, librarians are incredibly humble. And what I've learned, having come from the media sector, where well, healthy do- dose of ego, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is absolutely fine, but you know there have, have there really has been this extraordinary transformation that the library sector hasn't celebrated. And what I think is really interesting is that it's bottom up. So, so often in sectors, it's top down. And I think of in the media sector, 
all the discussions and brainstorming that happen at leadership levels where while everyone else was just getting on with the job of producing content every day, in libraries, the library leaders are very close to their communities. They're community leaders. Mm -hmm. And so what they're doing is they're solving the problems that they see every day and they've done it in a process which really um, is probably much slower but they've picked that up quicker than most other sectors. So you will have a library leader in one area who has um, a challenge with um, a, a new community and you know, really thinking through how she works with other community leaders to, to change the services that they're delivering. And time and time again, the favourite thing I do is I go on the public library tours and it is so inspiring to see the leadership in those sectors that has rapidly changed a service in one public library as the community itself has changed. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is this, there's this incredible professional generosity and they share what works and what doesn't work. Well, and of course, that's the essence of what a library is, right? It is preeminently sharing. the place for yes. sharing. Yes. It's about shared knowledge ever since we had the first libraries. Yes. And so it makes sense that that would thoroughly infiltrate. Do you have people, whether they're politicians or community members who actually do openly question, look, I have everything on my smartphone. Why do I need a library now? Well, interestingly, I, um, uh, I wondered that when I was first thinking about the job. And yet when I walked into the library, the State Library has never been busier and in Victoria, mm. um, Victorian libraries, whether they're in regional areas or in the city, have never been busier. So I think it's about the role rather than I have access to more information than yeah. I can ever dream of using yeah. in the palm of my hand. That's useless to me if in fact I haven't got some way of understanding how to really uh, value and access it in a way that is useful to me. You're listening to The Next Billion Seconds. We're talking to Kate Turney. And when we return, we're going to ask Kate what a library means to a six-year-old child. This is The Next Billion Seconds. We're talking to CEO of the State Library of Victoria, Kate Turney. So, Kate, most children come into a library in a real sense, sort of when they're five or six years old, they they can read enough that a library is now incredibly interesting. I remember that when I was that age and I could walk down to the library, I was like, oh my God, I got to take all these books home, right? And I would just go and disappear in there. And we know that because of screen culture and things being different now and kids have tablets and access to things from a very young age, what does a parent need to think about now when they're thinking about what it child wants or needs or should be getting out of a library so that that becomes a lifelong mm. asset for them? Well, we'd hope that they would be introducing their children to a library from birth. Mm. We know that that period between birth and the age of three in terms of just access to books is absolutely critical and yet underrated a little bit. We don't talk enough about that. Okay. So 15% of children who start school are developmentally challenged and we know that they will really struggle 
to catch up. Uh, so we've got a program at the moment across Victoria called A Thousand Books Before School, mm. encouraging parents to read a thousand books to their children before school. It can be the same book. It doesn't have to be a thousand different books, but just that notion of introducing um, the concept of reading to kids is really, really important. So we'd hope that the library was part of their lives uh, prior to the age of, of six. Um, and what we're seeing, and I think this is, it was an interesting Revelation for me joining the library, where um, the State Library of Victoria is in the middle of um, Melbourne. It's in a city and it's a, a big, beautiful, glorious uh, building built in 1860. Um, and yet, our, you know, you, you might think that if I want to take my child to a baby bounce program, that that's not necessarily the space that you would go to. We've been delivering that for many years and we get about 300 parents and carers in each of the sessions that we have. And what we found is a really strong representation from people uh, from non-English speaking backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily just inner city people who are coming. It's people from the suburbs who are using it as an opportunity to come to the city. A reason, there's yeah. A, you know, there's a, a train station opposite. Yeah. And the whole, the whole experience of the big building, it's quite a fascinating building for kids and then coming in to a community that uh, that has really grown that's really important so the reading time is in is important and we have wonderful entertainers who lead that program um, but it's more than the program itself it's an outing and it's introducing books, literacy, storytelling, and a sense of curiosity, so playful learning. and But also in a way that makes it feel very warm, that yeah. there's always going, and because these are my memories of going to the library when I was small, it was just, it was very warm, and, and the librarians were lovely and helped me find books, and, and it I, I'm sure that that's one of the reasons why I have always liked to read and liked to learn. Yeah. It's because that was – so really what we're saying is that from the moment – well, pretty much from the moment they're born, that we we treasure this reading, this storytelling mm. – and we see the library as a one expression yes. of that feeling and that storytelling and a place for that yes. where we can do it and we can do it in a connected way, which is what you're doing with these 300 families. Yes. And I think the interesting thing about um, the wonderful educationalists who run these sessions, it's introducing ongoing learning and the the, the, the the capacity and desire to question. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we think about um, if we think about a three year old now and their journey through life, wow, it's going to be so different to your and my mm -hmm. experiences. So that notion of being able to constantly question, acquire new skills, acquire new knowledge and constantly look for that and be really agile, that's in a sense precisely what the programs where we're introducing them to are so, about. So beyond the fact that it is good to have a love of reading, that that's something that will serve you as a quality for your entire life, it's also that there's this fundamental need for this as a capacity to yes. be able to succeed in life. Yes. So, so it's the, the reading element is important, but um, it's more than that. 
I think, um, you know, we talk a lot at the library about functional literacy too. It's it's about being able to live your life and having the numeracy and literacy skills to do that. But more than that, to really have uh, the skill set and the resilience that kids are going to need mm. to live in a very different world. Now, how, I mean, kids have so much information coming at them through so many different channels. Does Is the library an important part of the way they learn, I guess, how to, what we would call media literacy as grown-ups, sort of how to, we can be a little bit critical, but sort of just about how they can grade all of the stuff that's really being put at them. Look, we, we uh, ran an amazing and inspiring program last year, which was a program for kids in a regional community, and it was gifted students who had a real interest in history and research. And they had to apply, they nominated their field um, and the stories that they wanted to tell. And it was everything from, uh, you know, a, a particular plant species in their area through to a young girl who whose family moved into a bank in a tiny town um, up in the Mallee region of mm. only 50, 50 people. And she wanted to tell the story of that bank. What was the story? What happened during the gold rush, etc.? So we paired them with wonderful librarians and researchers from the library and they produced the most extraordinary documents which are now part of the library collection. So they were the stories that they wanted to tell. But the really interesting thing for both the researchers at the library and the kids who, part, who took part is that it was a mutual sharing of skills. Mm. So the librarians were able to teach them about deep research, not mm-hmm. about Google research, but about deep research, how we actually really go into collections across Australia to help you verify the stories that you want to tell. Um, where, and yet the kids had this extraordinary sort of capacity to jump around with ideas and to, and the librarians sort of threaded those back together. So it was a really beautiful partnership and just a, just a reminder that um, that it's a two-way thing. We need to learn. Well, and that that energy, you know, that boundless sort of um, going on to the next thing, which is childlike, right? Yeah. That's wonder and 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 play. Yes, you know that these are in fact necessary skills. But you you know you touch on something when you talk about sort of going deeper than Google, and this is you know a broader question that all of us are asking because all of us, even as adults, are being bombarded by. Mm facts maybe they're mm. not facts maybe they're fake facts whatever they and and you know this then touches on your role as a person who is involved deeply mm. in bringing news to australia as well one of the unexpected consequences of having a super rich information culture is that it's also not necessarily highly truthful mm. we didn't expect that and we're now in that world how do we both as individuals and I think in conjunction with what the library brings to us, how do we start to find our way through this sea of things that are maybe not true? Mm. And I think libraries have a really, libraries and librarians have a really important role to play there. If you think about trusted institutions Mm. um, and institutions which are non-controversial, and, you know, in a way, coming from a news organisation to the library, the roles are very, very different and yet so similar. Libraries are trusted institutions. When you ask your librarian a question, um, there's no conflict of interest. Right. There's, there's an objectivity uh, that is really quite 
rare. And I think we see that as a really important role and public libraries see that as a really important role. So the trust that we have, we take very, very seriously and, and librarians really pride themselves on the trust that the public have. And I've said a lot, and I mean this in the best sense of the phrase, but librarians have a public service ethos, which I've never seen anywhere else, a real focus on being there to support the public. Right. And, and I, think, I think that's... And to bring out the best in the public. Best I mean, in the that's public. the Absolutely. thing, right? Absolutely. And so whether or not that's for a toddler who's there for baby bounce or for someone who is researching their family history or from the famous author who is, you know, writing his or her next book through to the uh, year 12 student who's, who's on SWATVAC, I think, uh, you know, th- there's just a sense of, um, of, of focus and commitment uh, to, the, to the public. Okay, so we have the child. The child establishes this strong relationship with the library, with the librarians, and uses that through their years of formal learning to really build capacity so that it's always part of the mix and how they're learning and why they're learning, and it's always a resource for them. And, of course, we... We have this, I guess, at this point, it's a misapprehension that, you know, formal education ends in the early 20s and mm-hmm. we go out into the world and that's pretty much that. And, of course, the world of the 21st century, the world of the next billion seconds doesn't really look like that. We're now probably always going to be retraining ourselves. You know, it's funny because we call it professional development now, so that it kind of sounds like we're not going back to school, but that aspect of what we do, particularly if you're in a highly technical profession, is taking more and more and more of your time. We're getting to this point now where I could easily imagine within the next billion seconds, someone will be spending about as much time learning the next thing they're going Mm. to do as the thing they're doing now. Is the library ready? Is the library prepared for that kind of demand, which is a a very different kind of question than I think probably a six-year-old is asking. Well, I'll give you an example of that. Um, we're doing a $90 million redevelopment of the library at the moment, which I think is quite is interesting in that, you know, the Victorian government has committed $60 million to this library. Mm. So sort of a recognition of the role it will play, not only in the cultural sector, the creative sector, but importantly in the education sector. Mm-hmm. So very strong focus on Victoria um, on that being the library role. Part of that redevelopment is uh, the uh, formation of a, a thing called Start Space, and that's for early entry entrepreneurs because we see more and more in the li- in the state library but public libraries as well people coming in and asking for support in terms of their next step right. and and more and more we're looking at the, the changing job market and we know that the next generation is being is really focusing on self-employment and so how can we as a library support that? Now, there are entrepreneur spaces all over the city. There yeah. are co-working spaces. There are universities um, running, uh, you know, in this space. So what's the library's role? Well, we argue that the library's role is for the individual who would never 
walk into a co-working space, who would never walk into a university because they'd be in, they'd be intimidated. They mm. wouldn't see themselves as an yeah, entrepreneur. It's because of how they see themselves. It's how they see themselves. Yeah. And a little bit how, how we project entrepreneurism yeah. as well. Yeah. So someone said to me- But you are, the safe, you are literally the safe space. We yeah. are the safe space. No yeah. question is dumb. Yeah. So, so there's just that, and that's the, that's that's part of the beauty of the role of the librarian. No question is dumb, and I, I spoke to someone early on about this, and he said to me, um, he said to me, you know, when I think of co-working spaces, I think about the bearded kid <laughs> with playing ping pong. What would I do there? He's, I wouldn't know how to make wrong. more coffee. That's right. Yeah. So it's just that notion of, of being able to say, come in, no matter what stage you are at with your idea, we will help you. But importantly, we will then um, guide you out into that existing right. ecosystem. So it's filling a gap in the knowledge market that we don't think is filled anywhere else. And I think is is. Not, it's also taking a, a bunch of people who don't feel legitimately like they're part of that yes. community and saying you are absolutely part, part of, of that community. You're allowing them to believe in themselves. Well, in fact, they need to drive that sector. You know, if you think about the next 10 years and the job market and the Victorian economy, um, they are the ones that will need to, to drive a whole new uh, sector of work. Okay, Kate, last question. So this show is called The Next Billion Seconds. That takes us out to about 2050. What does, and the State Library is going to be on almost 200 years old in mm. 2050. What does the, a library and the State Library look like at that point in time? Mm. How do we feel about it? So I think um, if you think about sort of the core values of the library and, and anyone who knows the State Library of Victoria, it's a very grand building. And I look at the original building and I think of the aspiration of the men, and they were men in those days, who dreamed and built it. Um, Melbourne, Victoria was 20 years old at that time, and yet this incredibly large building, and so, you know, you can say, well, it was Gold Rush, etc. They could have spent their money on different things, mm -hmm. but they chose to spend their money on an institution in which access to knowledge was free. So I think that will that will forever be the principle. For the improvement of Victorians. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think the egalitarian nature of the library, more and more that will become important. Where else can you go that is safe, that is welcoming, where you don't have to engage in a transaction. You don't have to buy a coffee. You don't have to purchase anything. You are welcome to sit in that space for as long as you want to sit in that space. And I think more and more that will be important. So in 2050, I think those sorts of principles will be the ones that, that uh, apply. Kate Turney, thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you so much for having me. It's said that information isn't knowledge, and knowledge isn't experience. The gap between information and knowledge is understanding, and understanding is a human activity. It's information that's passed through people and on to others. Experience, well, you can't cheat that. You can tell someone all about what happened on your holidays, but until they do it for themselves, they won't really understand. We can share knowledge, but shared experience... That's actually still a bit beyond us. So while we live in this incredible world of shared knowledge, there are still some things that lie beyond our grasp. That's one reason why the next billion seconds will be the age of experience, because knowledge by itself is not enough.
We hope this chat with Kate Turney has got you to thinking, and if so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our Facebook page, send us a message on Twitter, or visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. Tell us what you want to know about the future, and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be talking to astrophysicist Dr. Katie Mack about how much can happen in a billion seconds and what may eventually happen to us. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Nick Slater, music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.